morning. You know, this is the time of year when it's a little nicer in Yuma. People get out and about, other than the fact that we're in the midst of still in a health crisis, if you will. I was reading in Genesis and story about what went on in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And an interesting thought. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. As I we're going to be talking about them, so my lesson will come from Genesis in that passage. I think Genesis 25, I don't have it on this page in my notes. But to get to that, I want to tell you a couple of stories. I want to ask you a question or two. Have you ever gone to a garage sale, a yard sale? Have you ever had one yourself? Probably many of us, if not all of us, have. Uh, when you had your own sale, did you find that you sold something that you said, why did I sell that? Because now you need it. Or maybe you found something at a garage sale and said, it's only two bucks, I'll probably not use it anyway, but it really looks like it might be okay. And you find out that it really was what you needed. Or maybe if you're shrewd and you go to something and you see something that somebody doesn't know what they have. But you do. And you take it. Because they only want a small amount for it. It reminds me of a couple of parables that Jesus taught. One was of a man who had a property, and another man found it. And he's out there surveying the property, looking it over, and he stumbles upon a treasure buried in that field. And he says, I've got to buy this property. That was a common way that they would hide some of their wealth from others so it wouldn't, thieves would not break in and steal but what happened was, with successive generations, things would get forgotten. And it would just be written off as a loss that nobody knew about. And there was no idea of finding the original owner, you know, three generations former, to returning it to them. Because it had changed hands so many times, it was not their property any longer. He also told a parable of a merchant who went out searching for a pearl or he was searching for something he found a pearl that was of supreme value he's both cases the men sold all that they have so they could possess that which was truly wealthy true wealth beyond measure when i think of a garage sale i think of maybe spending five bucks and it was a businessman in france i believe it was Several years ago, he purchased a painting or a sketch by a man by the name of Andy Warhol. He bought this at a garage sale for $5. He purchased it from a drug user whose aunt used to care for Andy Warhol and gave it to her. The artist had seen it when he was 10 or 11 years old. Maybe he stayed in touch with the family. I don't know. 
But this person was selling it. She says, I only want $5 for it. Turns out to be worth 1.3 million pounds or 1.3 million euros. About at that time, about probably a million and a half dollars. Or there was another one. This was a few years ago in San Bernardino. A woman by the name of Terry Horton was in a thrift store. She wanted to buy a gift for a friend. She found a large canvas covered in colorful paint drippings and splatters. She thought it was ugly. She paid $5 for the painting. Her friend thought it was ugly, too. But, you know, she said they couldn't get in her trailer. So it was a five and a half foot by four foot canvas. And so Horton tried to sell it at a garage sale. Her friend didn't want it. She said, well, I'll sell it. I only paid $5 for it. I'll sell it at a garage sale. And someone else, an art teacher, told her, says, this could be a painting by Jackson, by Jackson Pollock. She says, who's he? Well, apparently, he was a pretty popular and well-renowned artist. She's working to authenticate the painting, and right now it's believed by many to be an unknown work by this Jackson Pollock. And she's asking $50 million for it. I don't know what the return on that investment is, but it sounds pretty good to me. I'd take one that way, wouldn't you? Or maybe it was in, you know, a little over 10 years ago, 13 years ago. In 2008, Tony Morhoron bought a number of stock documents at a garage sale. You know, five bucks. There were some tins. And the documents were in the in the boxes. You know, they're old documents, and they're a bit of a curiosity in and of themselves. And so he bought it. It turned out that one had a stock certificate for a company, Palmer Oil, Union Oil Company, that was now formed Coca-Cola. It was a stock certificate worth 1.8 million shares of Coca-Cola. I don't know what it would be with stock splits and all, but it would probably be in excess of $130 million. Five bucks, a good return. And there was just another one, a man by the name of Rick Norsian. He was an artist. He bought two boxes of glass plate, glass plate photography negatives for $45 because they were of Yosemite uh, National Park area, and he li- he used to work up there, and he liked the area, the beauty of it, and he did some research and said these just might be worth these might be worth something. They might look like they're the of the landscape photographer Ansel Adams. Dozens of professionals looked at them, examined them. One was an FBI agent, a handwriting agent, a meteorologist who compared clouds in the photographs with works of Adams that were known to be his, shot around the same time. Burden of proof expert Manny Medrano said that I've sent people to prison for the rest of their lives on far less evidence I have in this case. At the time of their finding and discovering that they were probably Ansel Adams' photographs, they were valued at $200 million. Wow. Four great finds. Maybe could also be said to be Four great times of regret. Because even though I might be a drug user, I know that $1.3 million or $1.5 million is worth a whole lot more than $5. 
And that's what I discover in the life of Esau and Jacob. You see, in Genesis chapter 25, we have this story. Isaac is, well, he's getting close to the time of his death. And so we read here, we know about the birth of Isaac and Jacob, or Esau. Jacob and Esau, excuse me. The boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau's the outdoors man. He's got his father's eye. He's the firstborn, and so his father really loves him. Uh, Jacob might be a little bit you know, more reserved, a little more laid back, but his mother loves him. doesn't mean that Jacob didn't love or Isaac didn't love Jacob, and Rebecca didn't love Esau. It's just that for whatever reason, they each gravitated toward more relationally with the other one. But Esau happens to me to be one of the saddest figures in the Bible. Though he was the firstborn, and though he was loved by his father, he just had some sad happenings in his life. We know that he was a good side because he showed kindness to his brother who would deceive him out of his birthright. And that's what we're going to talk about today. He helped Isaac bury his father, their father. But it was on those two occasions in his life that Jacob manipulated his brother Esau. The first one was Jacob was cooking stew and Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Well, that was a pretty important thing to be asking for. And Jacob wanted it. I don't know the why. Friendly, brotherly competition. I don't know what was going on. Now, God had made a promise that the older would serve the younger to Rebekah. Uh, Jacob didn't need to do it this way, but he persuaded and he just said, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. Basically saying, you make a binding promise. You take an oath that this is going to be something you're going to do. It's going to be mine. And he says, okay, okay. He swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went away. God says, thus Esau despised his birthright. I think Esau went away thinking, my brother's so dumb. Our father's healthy, and he's going to be fine for a while. We're not going to worry about him dying for a little while. He'll forget about this stuff. I'll, I'll still get it. I don't know what he thought about it. But he sold his birthright. Now, there are some advantages to a birthright. A birthright then would contain a double portion of the father's inheritance. Everyone would share, but the oldest, the one who had the birthright, would have a double portion. So Isaac, by this time, had grown wealthy. So that meant Esau would be wealthy. He offered rule and authority over other members of the family. See, he was the head of the family. 
He was now the patriarch or would be the patriarch. He was the one who would take care of the family. That's why he would have a double portion. But the family would come to him for advice and consent and for what the things that they would do. But there was a spiritual advantage of the birthright as well. Being the patriarch, he would also be the priest of the household after the death of his father. That's what Esau gave up. Because God spoke at that time through the fathers. So Esau was surrendering that. He was the chief of the chosen family, the heir of all the promised blessings. He was able to invoke the blessing of Abraham regarding that threefold promise that God gave to him. In Genesis chapter 12, the one who blesses you, I will bless. The one who curses you, I will curse. I will make of you a great nation, and through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That you are going to have this. That's what Esau was giving up when just for a bowl of soup and some bread, he had to really be hungry. But it's one of those things that he really wasn't thinking about the cost. That's where the issues were at stake. And so Esau chose... In his moment of regret that would come back to haunt him, chose the sensual over the spiritual. He gave in to the cravings of hunger. I am about to die. And you, so what good is a birthright to me? I need food now. I don't know how long he had been out, but I seriously doubt that he was about to die. He just felt that way. So he valued a little bit of soup. A little bit of stew, more importantly, than his birthright. And so the Hebrew writer in chapter 12 and verse 6 would say that for this reason, he was considered to be an unholy person. A profane man, another translation says. Why? Because Esau chose the present over the future. Tossed away future rewards that he had no idea what they would mean just for some momentary gratification. The pottage may have given way and eased his hunger for the day, but what about tomorrow? You see, when we count things only for today and we're not looking at tomorrow, we kind of line ourselves up with Esau. We may not think that we're making a bargain like this, but we might be making a bargain like that. We might be having a $5 painting that we're selling at a garage sale, and it might turn out to be something worth millions of dollars. But we wouldn't do that, would we? We would just know somebody that might, right? Are we selling our birthright is a question. What is our birthright as a Christian? We are heirs according to that promise made to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, in the book of Galatians chapter 3, verses... Well, we'll start in verse 26 and 27, where it says, yes, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. So in Christ, we trace our spiritual heritage all the way back to Abraham. And God said to him, your seed, we're his seed. 
We've been blessed. We are joint heirs of life with Christ. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, joint heirs. That means we share in the heritage of Christ. We are heirs according to the hope of, the, of eternal life. That is ours. We're heirs of the kingdom that we've been added into. And so, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, Colossians 3 and verse 21, He says, fathers do not, no, yeah. fathers do not obey, provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Whoops. Oops, excuse me. That's 1 Corinthians. I can't even read my own writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. We are heirs of Christ. The things that God has for those in his kingdom belong to you and me as we walk faithfully with him. Our inheritance, Peter would describe it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven. So we have a promise, and we can live that promise today, because it's written as though we, don't, we know that we don't possess it today in reality. It's ours as a future reward. It is spoken of as a real possession today, even though it's coming to us in the future. We have this reserved for us. And of course, it's not just limited to things way down the road. When Peter asked Jesus, when he said, those who have followed him will be blessed, he said, we've left everything to follow you. And he said, yeah, everyone who follows me will have a hundred times more in this life, in farms and houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And they had that one little and eternal life, had that one little part in their persecutions. We'd like to minimize that part of it, but that will be ours as a result of following Christ, too. But look what we have today in Christ. We are family. We have children. Because we have brothers and sisters who have children. They are just like ours because of the relationship that we have in Christ. We have men and women who care about us. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul rebuked the church in, first, in Corinth as we were reading about taking that meal together and forgetting and some now let's just go ahead and eat. They didn't care about the body. But we have a body, we have a family, and we need to care. But are we making a bad bargain today? How might we sell our birthright? That's what Esau did. That's what this is all about. Well... We might sell our birthright by giving in to temptation, succumbing to the passing pleasures of sin. We look at something today and it's, I want it. I want it now. I don't want to wait. I'm entitled. We'll have a lot of reasons, a lot of justifications to say that I'm entitled to it, to justify why I should do it. 
And it's just not ours. You know, John said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following, Do not love the things in the world. For the things that are in the world are the lust of the eye, the pride, uh, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. You can probably see those in the temptations of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, we know that the Satan tried to tempt him and say, you know, turn these stones to bread if you're the son of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lust of the flesh, yeah. I'm hungry. I want that food. I'm starving. Sell me your birthright. Okay, what good is a birthright to me? Do we do that? You think about it. Maybe that's what Satan was really trying to get Jesus to do there. Sell me your birthright. Give in to your hunger. Then as we continue on with this comparison of 1 John chapter 2 with the Jesus in the wilderness. Yeah, I'll get back to it. In Matthew chapter 4. One more page over. He tempted him. He took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Up to the pinnacle of the temple. Just jump off. The angels aren't going to let anything happen to you. Wow. That would look spectacular. That would surely do a lot to persuade people that I'm the son of God. Now, what God wanted, though, and so Jesus said, it's written, you'll not put the Lord your God to the test. And then he took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only serve. Lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. It looks good. Let's eat. I don't have to go through this pain. Looks good. I'm done. We walk after the flesh rather than the Spirit of God. Oh, it is so easy sometimes to get caught up in life because the things of the flesh are so easy to give into. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, but I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So let me tell you, Galatians, the works of the flesh are this are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, fits of, or jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the spirit, fruit of the Spirit of, 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's put to death the deeds of the flesh and live the life of the Spirit. Walking after the Spirit. So much better for body life, for our lives. So we hold on to our birthright by pursuing peace and the holiness of God. We do not want to fall short of the grace of God. We exercise disciplines and godliness in our daily life. That comes through fellowship with God's people. That comes through reading his word, studying his word, prayer, serving others. We don't look at just today as being the end of when it's going to take place and give us our temporary satisfaction. We do something that's delayed gratification. Esau made a mistake of depreciating the value of his inheritance. He gave in to the desires of the flesh because he wasn't thinking about the future and what it means, what it would have meant for him. I know that the promise was to Jacob. And God would have found a way to work it out had Jacob not enticed him, had Esau not succumbed to the temptation. But the fact of the matter is, that's the way it worked out. And Esau sold his birthright because he didn't value a promise of God that was made to his father, Isaac, that he didn't know and he just couldn't see it coming to pass. So we might make a similar mistake if we do not appreciate the value of our inheritance in Christ. We may say yes to the things of this world, to the allure of immediate gratification of the flesh. If we're not careful, the time may come when it's too late, no matter how many tears we said. Because maybe we won't have time for repentance. So we need to heed such warnings as the Apostle Paul gave the church in Corinth once again. This time in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We're starting a new year. May we be motivated and encouraged not to do anything that would cause us to surrender our birthright. So that we may not grieve as Esau grieved. So that we may not lose what God has promised us. So that we may not lose what we have. I don't know where you are today. But I know that the Bible has many things to tell us about life and how it interfaces with life that we live today. The example of Esau is but one example of how easy it is to get caught up in life and forget what we have. This is only the second Sunday of the new year. But as we go through the rest of the days of the year until the Lord comes, may we not look at the temporal. May we always focus and fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of the faith. That cloud of witnesses that is in Hebrews chapter 11 to encourage us to walk faithfully with Christ, 
so that we'll never surrender the birthright that we have in Christ. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, whatever it might be that you need, come to him while together we stand and while we sing. Come, come.